Welcome to Eddie Hurst's podcast version of The War of the Worlds. An audio scrapbook of H.G. Wells' seminal novel, The The War of the Worlds. Because that's like, it's in the title of the show, isn't it? Think of this like one of those books you get from the library that's got all those little doodles and notes on the side, but in an audio form, because why should graffiti just be saved for paper books? Since being published in 1897, it's been turned into countless movies, fear-inducing radio shows, comics, cartoons, and even a musical, which, I mean, is an absolute banger. Uh, it's, it's by Jeff Wayne, you know, of Jeff Wayne's War of the World musical fame, so you don't get confused with all the other musical versions of War of the Worlds. I'm Eddie Hurst, a musical comedian and human, show off, from Manchester, and each episode I'll be reading a chapter or two of the book and going down the many rabbit holes it takes me, from colonial rule in Victorian times to what I imagine deleted scenes must have been like in the book. There'll also be a song or two, or three, they'll probably, I mean I'm a musical comedian, there'll be a bunch of songs. Why this book? Well, let me take you back in time to a magical world called February 2020, where people could go outdoors, everything was beautiful, and nothing hurt. Except for global warming, Brexit, political global strife, and general existential ennui. Anyway, I was doing a show called Eddie Hurst's comedy version of Jeff Wayne's musical version of H.G. Wells' literary version, by Orson Welles' radio version of Steven Spielberg's film version, of The War of the Worlds. Understandably, the onset of Global Rona made it a little unsafe to do the show. While we're here, I thought I'd make a deep dive into the book that launched so many ships. Spaceships, right? Originally, War of the Worlds was serialised, a bit like how comic books are divided up into weekly issues, so it doesn't seem too weird to divide it up like that in a podcast like we're doing. Also, War of the Worlds falls into the wonderful world of public domain! So I'm not stepping on anyone's creative incomes or legal toes doing this. So let's get started with book one, The Coming of the Martians. The War of the Worlds By H.G. Wells There's a little quote to begin the uh, begin the, the book here But who shall dwell in these worlds if they be inhabited? Are we or they lords of the world? And how are all things made for man? That's by Kepler uh, in his book The Anatomy of Melancholy uh, which I'm sure is a real feel-good hit Book 1 The Coming of the Martians Hey Martians, get over here Chapter 1. The Eve of the War. I will say at this point, the reason I am talking so precisely during the audiobook is that I am using what is known as actor's voice. No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that this world was being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. That as men busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinised and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinise the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacency, men went to and fro over this globe about their little affairs, serene in their assurance of their empire over matter. It is possible that the infuriosa Infuriosa? No, Infuriosa is that lady from Mad Max. It's not Infusori. Oh, hey there, it's me, the explaining lad. Uh, I'm just going to come along every now and then and explain things. So, uh, Infusoria, it's, it's, it's single-celled creatures that are used to feed baby fish. So, it's like a little creature used to feed a less little creature. All right, see you later, bye! The Infusoria, under the microscope, do the same. 
No one gave a thought to the older worlds of space as sources of human danger, or thought of them only to dismiss the idea of life upon them as impossible or improbable. It is curious to recall some of the mental habits of those departed days. At most terrestrial men fancied there might be other men upon Mars, perhaps inferior to themselves and ready to welcome a missionary enterprise. Hey Martians, this, this place is pretty cool, but let me tell you who's even cooler. That's right, it's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Yet across the gulf of space, minds that are to our minds as ours are to those of the beasts that perish, intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes, and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. Okay, so quickly to explain this bit before we go back, uh, that was a clip from Jeff Wayne's The War of the Worlds musical version. I'll talk more about this at length in numerous episodes, I'm sure, but if you've not heard it, go listen to it. It's great. And early in the 20th century came the Great Disillusionment. The planet Mars, I scarcely need remind the reader, revolves about the Sun at a mean distance of 140 million miles, and the light and heat it received from the Sun is barely half of that received by this world. It must be, if the nebula hypothesis has any truth, older than our world. And long before this Earth ceased to be molten, life upon its surface must have begun its course. The fact that it is scarcely one-seventh of the volume of Earth must have accelerated its cooling to the temperature at which life could begin. It has air and water and all that is necessary for the support of animated existence. Yet so vain is man, and so blinded by his vanity, that no writer, up to the very end of the 19th century, expressed any idea that intelligent life might have developed there far, or indeed at all, beyond its earthly level. Nor was it generally understood that since Mars is older than our Earth, with scarcely a quarter of the superficial area and remoter from the Sun, it necessarily follows that it is not only more distant from time's beginning, but nearer its end. The secular cooling that must someday overtake our planet has already gone far indeed with our neighbour. Its physical condition is still largely a mystery, but we know now that even in its equatorial region, the midday temperature barely approaches that of our coldest winter. Its air is much more attenuated than ours. Hey, it's me, the explaining lad. Attenuated, it means less than. It means like, not as, not as, like, not as effective. It's not as good. It's shitter, shitter. Its oceans have shrunk until they cover but a third of its surface. And as its slow seasons change, huge snow caps gather and melt about either pole and periodically inundate its temperate zones. That last stage of exhaustion, which to us is still incredibly remote, has become a present-day problem for the inhabitants of Mars. The immediate pressure of necessity has brightened their intellect, enlarged their powers, and hardened their hearts. And looking across space with instruments and intelligences such as we have scarcely dreamed of, they see, at its nearest distance only 35 million of miles sunward of them, a morning star of hope. Our own warmer planet, green with vegetation and grey with water, with a cloudy atmosphere eloquent of fertility with glimpses through its drifting cloud wisps of broad stretches of populous country and narrow, navy-crowded seas. And we men, the creatures who inhabit this earth, must be to them at least as alien and lowly as the monkeys and lemurs are to us. As the monkeys and lemurs are to us. 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 The monkeys and lemurs are to us.
The intellectual side of man already admits that life is an incessant struggle for existence, and it would seem that this too is the belief of the minds upon Mars. Their world is far gone in its cooling, and this world is still crowded with life, but crowded only with what they regard as inferior animals. To carry war sunward is, indeed, their only escape from the destruction that, generation after generation, creeps upon them. And before we judge them too harshly, we must remember what ruthless and utter destruction our own species has wrought, not only upon animals, such as the vanished bison and the dodo, but upon its inferior races. Hmm. The Tasmanians, in spite of their human likeness, were entirely swept out of existence in a war of extermination waged by European immigrants in the space of 50 years. Wait, what? This, and I was like, first, I didn't know that there was a huge genocide in Tasmania. But to be fair, I'm not really that educated on most genocides. And, and second, Wells really just glazes over the whole destruction of a population of people. So then I went on a bit of a research rabbit hole with the cultural history of Tasmania and also some bad old fashioned Victorian racism. It might not be the biggest revelation to hear, but the Victorian times were pretty racist. And by pretty, I, I mean super. They were for racism very much what the Beatles were to rock music. I mean, technically they didn't invent it, but they really changed how we look at it today. Being racist was always really useful for the British Empire, as if you thought that another country or people were different and worse than you, it really helped when you made them slaves or took the land off them. Didn't want anything like guilt getting involved in some good old imperial slaughter. But what was different in Victorian times was the introduction of science! Da -da -da. No longer just a hobby for bored monks trying to find God in a jar of gravy, science was becoming big business. For big boys, with big beards, where no girls were allowed, for they would be hysterical with their lady brains and, um, other, other reasons, I'm sure. The biggest lad of the lot was old Charlie Darwin, creator of evolution. The scientific theory, not the timeless Ivan Reitman classic from 2001. In his book of Origin of Species, Chazza D put forward the idea that creatures of the earth change and develop in relation to their environment, weaned out by natural selection. Giraffe with a longer neck can get more of the higher up leaves, so they got longer necks. The earlier bird gets a worm and procreates with all their mother sexy birds. Ah oh, yeah, honey, I got up before I am for this worm. Wanna make some little eggs? His book dropped in 1859, and not long after, scientists started going, Hey, this is great for animals, but what if we could use it for something useful? Like racism! Using Darwin's ideas and applying it to people is called social Darwinism, and it's still circling around the headspace of racists to this day. Anyone saying, They shouldn't be allowed to have children. I worry for humanity's future. Or, They're just biologically better at swimming. It's something to do with their bones. You can thank Darwin. Thanks, Darwin. Mad props to Jean-Baptiste Lamarche and Alfred Russell Wallace for getting the ball rolling with social Darwinism. Then Francis Galton rocked up with eugenics in 1865. Eugenics is the idea of selectively breeding humans to create a superior race. You know, like the Nazis did. Fortunately, when both eugenics and social Darwinism were first suggested, they did face a lot of criticism. Unfortunately, most of that criticism was about the practical ability to achieve it, rather than, you know, not, not doing it at all. 
Don't worry, because thanks to scientific method, the idea of eugenics was developed and ready for the future thanks to Thomas Huxley. Here he investigated anatomical differences to suggest that not only were white Europeans the best, they were also probably their own separate species from the rest of humans. No man, cognizant of the facts, believes that the average Negro is the equal, still less the superior, to the white man. H.G. Wells wrote War of the Worlds in 1898. So the world had only been working on the scientific study proving that white was right for uh, only about 40 years. H.G. Uh, Wells was also a student of Thomas Huxley, so like, unless he was the one person within the scientific establishment who for some reason didn't think these sort of views, he probably definitely agreed with it. Interestingly, Aldous Huxley, Thomas's grandson, would go on to write dystopian drug novel Brave New World, where he subverts the idea of natives and savages. But hey, get your own audio scrapbook podcast for that book. So wow, Eddie, you solved the case. Old white men were racist. Thanks for unveiling that revelation. Well, the reason I think it's important to say this, especially on the first chapter, is that racism is kind of baked into Victorian science fiction. I mean, racism is baked into most things. It was very much the sugar of the British Empire cake and that sugar was probably made from a slave plantation. So whilst the science of the day was talking about people who lived outside of white Europe being a different species, the idea that another species coming from out of the world that was more advanced, with unclear motives, to exploit your people and lands was, well, maybe a little bit on the nose. Anyway, last bit I promise and we'll get back to the book. The Tasmanians mentioned as a wiped out race of people turns out were not actually wiped out. The Palava people were suspected to have all been killed by the Black War, a seven-year war slash genocide in the 1820s conquest through Australia. The last of these Tasmanians was reportedly Truganini, who passed away in 1876 after what just sounded like a real hell of a series of events to have to endure in your life. But rest assured, she received a dignified afterlife by, uh, just let me check my notes, having her body on display at the Tasmanian Museum until 1951. But the Aborigines of Tasmania weren't brought to extinction. There's a huge discussion and debate over what identity a Tasmanian Aborigine is, many now claiming it are actually white with European ancestry too, uh, only recently discovering their lineage and heritage as part of the Tasmanian people. Because it turns out if you're one of a handful of people who escaped a genocide from an army, you might want to keep your identity secret if it could lead to you and your family being killed. And if you were part of a racist society but you could pass for white, well, wouldn't it be safer to do it? Maybe? Okay, so if anyone TLDR for this bit, uh, Aborigine identity is a real can of worms, Victorian science had a nasty racist streak that still shapes a lot of thought to this day, and it's all a bit much for a white male comedian to get into, but it's still worthwhile explaining because I feel like I have some sort of moral obligation to distance myself from the idea book. Are we such apostles of mercy as to complain if the Martians warred in the same spirit? The Martians seem to have calculated their descent with amazing subtlety. Their mathematical learning is evidently far in excess of ours, and to have carried out their preparations with a well-nigh perfect unanimity. Had our instruments permitted it, we might have seen the gathering trouble far back in the 19th century. Men like Schiaparelli watched the Red Planet. It is odd, by the by, that for countless centuries Mars has been the star of war, but failed to interpret the fluctuating appearances of the markings they mapped so well. It's a little bit, I think that's HG Wells going to go, of war? War coming here? Imagine that. Uh, but I kind of feel like that irony's lost, in it? If you've chosen it, you know, just saying like if you wear a if you wear a stupid coat, or like you wear some stupid like hipsters wear something ironically. I'm not sure if you can. Um, I'm not sure if it's actually. Cute. It's not really very funny if 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 they say, "Oh, isn't it funny? I've chosen to wear this." 
Isn't it funny that I've completely of my own volition decided to wear this stupid thing to look stupid? All that time, the Martians must have been getting ready. During the opposition of 1894, a great light was seen on the illuminated part of the disc, first at the Lick Observatory, then by Periton of Nice, and then by other observers. English readers heard of it first in the issue of Nature, dated August 2nd. I'm inclined to think that this blaze must have been the casting of the huge gun in the vast pit sunk into their planet, from which their shots were fired at us. Peculiar markings, as yet unexplained, were seen near the site of that outbreak during the next two oppositions. The storm burst upon us six years ago now, as Mars approached opposition. Lavelle of Java set the wires of astronomical exchange palpitating, with the amazing intelligence of a huge outbreak of incandescent gas upon the planet. It had occurred towards midnight of the 12th, and the spectroscope, to which he had at once resorted, indicated a mass of flaming gas, chiefly hydrogen, moving with an enormous velocity towards this Earth. This jet of fire had become invisible about quarter past 12. He compared it to a colossal puff of flame, suddenly and violently squirted out of the planet. Flaming gases rushed out of a gun. A singularly appropriate phrase it proved. Yet the next day there was nothing of this in the papers, except a little note in the Daily Telegraph and the world went in ignorance of one of the gravest dangers that ever threatened the human race. I might not have heard of the eruption at all had I not met Ogilvy, the well-known astronomer at Ottershaw. He was immensely excited at the news, and in the excess of his feelings invited me up to take a turn with him that night in a scrutiny of the Red Planet. Boys night! In spite of all that has happened since, I still remember that vigil very distinctly. That black and silent observatory. The shadowed lantern throwing a feeble glow upon the floor in the corner the steady ticking of the clockwork of the telescope, the little slit in the roof, an oblong profundity with the starlight streaked across it. Ogilvy moved about, invisible but audible. Looking through the telescope, one saw a circle of deep blue and the light round planet swimming in the field. It seemed such a little thing, so bright and small and still, faintly marked with traverse stripes and slightly flattened from the perfect round. But so little it was, so silvery warm, a pin's head of light. It was as if it quivered. But really, that was just the telescope vibrating with the activity of the clockwork that kept the planet in view. Duh. As I watched, the planet seemed to grow larger and smaller and to advance and recede. But that was simply that my eye was tired. Uh. 40 million of miles it was from us. More than 40 millions of miles of void. Few people realize the immensity of vacancy in which the dust of the material universe swims. Near it in the field, I remember, were three faint points of light. Three telescopic stars infinitely remote, and all around it was the unfathomable darkness of empty space. Get ready for some, uh, some prime observational comedy from Wells here. You know how that blackness looks on a frosty starlight night? In a telescope it seems far profounder. Alright, sorry, swing and a miss, my bad. And invisible to me because it was so remote and small flying swiftly and steadily towards me across that incredible distance, drawing nearer every minute by so many thousands of miles. The Thing. They were sending us. The Thing. That was to bring so much struggle and calamity and death to the Earth. I never dreamed of it then as I watched. No one on Earth dreamed of that unerring missile. That night, too, there was another jetting out of gas from the distant planet. I saw it. A reddish flash at the edge, the slightest projection of the outline just as the chronometer struck midnight. And at that I told Ogilvy, and he took my place. 
The night was warm and I was thirsty, and I went stretching my legs clumsily and feeling my way in the darkness to the little table where the siphon stood, while Ogilvy exclaimed at the streamer of gas that came out towards us. That night, another invisible missile started on its way to the Earth from Mars, just a second or so under 24 hours after the first one. I remember how I sat on the table there in the blackness, with patches of green and crimson swimming before my eyes. I wish I had a light to smoke by, little suspecting the meaning of the minute gleam I had seen and all that it would presently bring me. Ogilvy watched till one and then gave it up, and we lit the lantern and walked over to his house. Down below in the darkness were Ottershaw and Chertsey, and all their hundreds of people, sleeping in peace. He was full of speculation that night about the condition of Mars, and scoffed at the vulgar idea of its having inhabitants who were signalling us. His idea was that meteorites might be falling in a heavy shower upon the planet, or that a huge volcanic explosion was in progress. He pointed out to me how unlikely it was that organic evolution had taken the same direction in the two adjacent planets. The chances of anything coming from Mars are millions to one. He said, hundreds of observers saw the flame that night, and the night after about midnight, and again the night after. And so for ten nights, a flame each night. Why the shot ceased after the 10th, no one on Earth has attempted to explain. It may be the gases of the firing caused the Martians inconvenience. Dense clouds of smoke or dust, visible through a powerful telescope on Earth as little grey, fluctuating patches, spread through the clearness of the planet's atmosphere and obscured its more familiar features. Hello, and welcome to Mars News Tonight. In recent news, many people have noted that they can't see anything due to a thick fog of dust everywhere. It has been described as inconvenient. Even the daily papers woke up to the disturbances at last, and popular notes appeared here, there, and everywhere concerning the volcanoes upon Mars. The serio-comic periodical Punch, I remember, made happy use of it in the political cartoon. And, all unsuspected, those missiles the Martians had fired to us drew earthward, rushing now at a pace of many miles a second through the empty gulf of space, hour by hour, and day by day, nearer and nearer. It seems to me now almost incredibly wonderful that, with that swift fate hanging over us, men could go about their petty concerns as they did. I remember how jubilant Markham was at securing a new photograph of the planet for the illustrated paper he edited in those days. People in these latter times scarcely realised the abundance and enterprise of our 19th century papers. For my own part, I was much occupied in learning to ride the bicycle and busy upon a series of papers discussing the probable developments of moral ideas as civilization progressed. You want to open with the bike though there, that's definitely the most important one you're doing. One night, the first missile then could scarcely have been 10 million miles away. I went for a walk with my wife. It was starlight, and I explained the signs of the zodiac to her, and pointed out Mars, a bright dot of light creeping zenithward, towards which so many telescopes were pointed. It was a warm night. Coming home, a party of excursionists from Chertsey or Alworth passed us singing and playing music. There were lights in the upper windows of the houses as the people went to bed. From the railway station in the distance came the sound of shunting trains, ringing and rumbling, softened almost into melody by the distance. My wife pointed out to me the brightness of the red, green and yellow signal lights hanging in a framework against the sky. It seemed so safe and tranquil. So there we go, the first chapter of The War of the Worlds. Ooh, the scene is set. So there's there's still more to go, obviously. 
we've got chapter two what happens next well we're gonna find out so don't worry about that one little bit if you've enjoyed it you know thank you please tell people about it share it on social media that is largely how this sort of stuff grows and um, you can follow me on twitter at edyhurst eddie hurst h-u-r-s-t on instagram and on facebook at the same name as well uh, so tell people also put a rating for five stars on apple if you can uh you know because if you've enjoyed it let all people we have to be slaves to our online overlords eddie hurst podcast version of the war of the worlds was created and produced by eddie hurst written by hg wells and eddie hurst the theme song is fall of saigon by ichabod wolf um, special thanks this episode to the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre for lots of resources on Tasmanian history and also for the articles by Gregory Lehman and Peter H. Conlon in Inquiries Journal. Thanks, see you next week. Don't forget to like, rate, tell people. Bye.